Okay, so let me set us up in terms of some logistics and then we'll talk. There's sort of several questions I have for us, for you, and they're sort of in three sections. I want to talk about the reading experience of this book. Section two is sort of like more about the context, the historical context, the ethical kind of considerations around the form of erasure. The third section was in, in anticipating Nicole's visit and thinking about what to ask her, what not to ask her, you know, what 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 we want to know from Nicole when she visits the reading with Rachel um, sa- salon. Uh, so I love, that. I love that it's a salon now. <laughs> yes. Any suggestions or requests uh, about that kind of overall structure before we dive in? No, I mean, I have um, some stuff to talk about and maybe questions for you too, but we can, you know, I think a lot of them are are in here. Okay. That, or I can, I can pull them out of what you, you know. Hello and welcome to episode 122 of Commonplace. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. You're listening to a conversation between me and Christine LaRusso. Christine is a longtime Commonplace producer. In fact, she's been part of the Commonplace team from the very beginning. She is the author of There Will Be No More Daughters, which we discussed together in Commonplace episode 79. Christine and I recorded this conversation over Zoom on January 24th, 2024, in anticipation of Nicole Seeley's live virtual visit to my online class or session or salon or salon of Reading with Rachel. Reading with Rachel is a year-long celebration of reading and making that meets on Zoom on the last Tuesday of each month to discuss a book. The first hour of the class is called the listening session, and is devoted to the book itself. The listening session almost always includes a visit from the author or editor of that month's book. The second half of the salon is the maker's session, in which we who are language arrangers and makers, visual artists, dancers, multi-instrumentalists, and form seekers, talk about our reading and making practices in conjunction with and inspired by the book of the month. All Reading with Rachel participants get an email from me two or three weeks before the session with an annotated bibliography and either an audio note, a pre-interview with the author, or, as you're about to hear, a conversation about the book between me and someone else. I decided to share this excerpted version of my pre-salon conversation with Christine alongside the recording of Nicole Seeley's visit, which you'll hear after this part with me and Christine, because I think it provides an interesting context to the conversation with Nicole and because you'll hear me doing something that I actually don't do very often on the podcast, talk to another writer about reading. When I talk to an author about their own book, I'm often talking about writing more than reading, 
And I'm talking usually about living more than writing. But in this episode, you get all of the above. You'll hear Nicole talk about the practice of erasure, her process of working with the Ferguson Report, having learned to write anywhere at any time, what she's working on now, and much more. Nicole Seely was born in St. Thomas, Virgin Islands, and raised in Apopka, Florida. She received an MFA from New York University and an MLA in Africana Studies from the University of South Florida. Seely is the author of Ordinary Beast, which was a finalist for the Penn Open Book and Hurston Wright Legacy Awards. Her chapbook, The Animal After Whom Other Animals Are Named, was the winner of a 2016 Drinking Gourd Chapbook Prize. In 2019, Seely was named a Hotter Fellow at Princeton University. She has received fellowships and awards from Contamundo, the Cave Canem Foundation, the American Academy in Rome, the New York Foundation for the Arts, and the Elizabeth George Foundation, among others. Nicole Seely worked at Cave Canem for several years, first as programs director and then as executive director. Even if you haven't yet read Nicole's amazing books or encountered her amazingness as a teacher or through Cave Canem, you might recognize her name from the Sealy Challenge, which Nicole started in 2017. The Sealy Challenge is an open community invitation to read 31 books of poetry or chapbooks of your own choosing in the month of August. From thesealychallenge.com. The goals are simple. Read a book each day, engage with diverse voices, and be an active member of an online community of poetry lovers. Check it out, or better yet, do it this coming August. It's enormously satisfying and connecting. And if you'd like a reading community before August, or if you'd like a live virtual reading community, there's still time to sign up for the remaining sessions of Reading with Rachel. On February 27th, Hafiza Augustus Jeter will join us to discuss her memoir, The Black Period. At the end of March, we've got Sabrina Ora Mark talking about her book, Happily. April brings Eugenia Lee talking about her book of poetry, Bianca, which you heard me and Mike Sakasagawa talk about in a previous episode. In May, we will discuss Mary Rufel's book, The Book. And in June, I will discuss my own book, Sound Machine. In July, Brenda Shaughnessy will join us and we will discuss her book, Tanya. The first two people to sign up for either a listener or a maker session will receive a free copy of that month's book. If you'd like to know more about Reading with Rachel and other Commonplace School classes, check out our new website, commonplace.today, where you'll find all Commonplace episodes, extra resources for each episode, and transcripts for almost every episode. We are getting so close to being fully transcribed, thanks to the work of our previous transcribers and now the wonderful and intrepid Commonplace producer, poet Lee Sugar. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive a copy of the Ferguson Report and Erasure, courtesy of Knopf, or M. Norbessie Phillips' book-length poetic erasure Zong, courtesy of Wesleyan University Press, Jen Bourbon's Nets, courtesy of Ugly Duckling Press, 
or Janet Holmes's The Miss of My Kin, courtesy of Shearsman Books. All patrons will get access to the longer unabridged conversation between Christine and me, the annotated bibliography I shared with the reading rate with Rachel participants, a list of recommended books of poetic erasures, a 15-minute excerpt of a not-yet-released commonplace episode with poet Mary Rufel about her erasure practice. In honor of this episode, Commonplace's charitable partner will donate $250 to Furious Flower, chosen by Nicole Seely. The nation's first academic center for Black poetry, Furious Flower is a department of James Madison University, a public institution in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Furious Flower supports an annual national poetry contest, regional theatrical productions that honor Black cultural icons and writers, a community summer camp, and an international conference for scholars and writers from around the world to explore contemporary trends in Black literature, culture, and thought that convenes once every 10 years. So, you'll hear Christine and me talk about Nicole Seeley's The Ferguson Report and Erasure, And then, around minute 45, you'll hear the audio of the listening portion of Reading with Rachel with Nicole Seeley herself, and at the end, you'll hear Nicole answer a few questions from the Reading with Rachel participants. Enjoy. I'm super excited to talk to you about this book, and I want to start by talking about the what it felt like to read this book tell me and 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 then I'll tell you like where did you read it when did you read it and what did it feel like to read it if you can remember okay I read the book I read a um, reader's advanced copy I believe from the publisher right before it came out and I read it the first time all in one sitting Hmm. and this Last time I, I read it before um, we before today, I read it over two sittings, and that's partially just you know I felt like I had to take more notes and be more thoughtful about it. But I think both times, I actually felt like I need to go back and return to the text. I mean, every many of the words are so drawn out, and you know it it requires it's a really physical book. I find. Like I felt, I felt like I was kind of wrestling with the text as I was reading it. Um, And not in a way that like, it's not that the language created that, it's that the actual form of the way that she has the erasure on the page is forcing the the brain to do that, which I think creates this, you know, a kind of bodily feeling of like intensity and I found that so fascinating because, you know, a lot of erasures don't break up the the words in that way. So it would just take the word full instead of finding the F and the U and the L and the L in several different words and finding the full in many different words versus the full already existing in the text. So for me, yeah, it was a very, very like bodily experience, um, which um, was was intense. And I and I think, you know, does create, I felt like, you know, there were times that I read 
some of it. And I wasn't even sure, you know, did I get the full word? You know, is there more, are there more letters there? Because they would run on into the whole, into the whole line and sometimes into two lines. So I found that's really stunning and um, just, yeah, it, it really created this need for me to I, return to it. How did you feel about having the sort of like original text behind the the text, you know, her erasure text? I mean, did that help you when you were reading it or no? I'm curious just because of that, the way that she structures the yeah. erasure. Yeah. So let me just describe it um, to somebody yeah. listening for a second. Um, but so the the Ferguson report is included in gray in, in, in sort of very light gray. And mostly it is also crossed out in that same gray. And then some of the words that form the poems are in kind of like standard black ink. The, the Ferguson report is erased by being in gray and, and crossed out the the black text kind of floats up almost to the surface almost as if it's like a pond and the text the darker text is floating to the surface and um as you described so in some erasures a person will like erase but leave whole words there are instances of that but there are also instances of words she's she's erasing parts of words and you have to like form the word over across a line sort of very stretched out or sometime down the page and and it's in sections and the sections are uh it'll say like the section title will be like pages 22 to 34 and that's referring again to the Ferguson report and then at the back of the book there is a section uh, nine is lifted poems. And there she's included the, the poems without the grayed out, erased out text. So mm -hmm. you can also have the experience of reading those poems without the pausing and the stretching and the delay. There's no punctuation in the main sections of the book. There, the lifted poems, which are the same poems, uh, she's added punctuations and line breaks, obviously. When you described it as embodied and talked about the intensity of it, that was my experience as well. I read it in one sitting and then returned to it little by little. And I did not read, I looked at, and there were moments where the words of the grayed out text came into my field of vision and into my consciousness. But I really made almost no effort to pay attention to the grayed out parts. That, in, and, and my experience also was that word embodied, like it really, it felt like uh, such an active uh, reading experience because I, I was waiting for a letter to conclude the word. And you mm -hmm. don't know yet, you know, like within each word, what, what the word will be. And then sometimes all of a sudden you have a full word. And so the things 
speed up, they slow down. Sometimes a, a phrase, you know, I won't, I won't know syntactically or imagistically or anything where I'm going until I get there. And it's really, I think it's a process that happens when I'm reading anything, but mostly I'm not aware of it. The inclusion of the other text seems essential and critical to the experience of reading it. I don't know what I make of the fact that like, not only did I not feel pressure to read that, but I didn't feel badly about not reading it. Did you think like you were supposed to read that part? Um, okay. Well, a few things. I, it, it really feels like a, a living text in a lot of ways. And also like almost the way you're describing it makes me think of, it almost feels like you're kind of chasing after the next word or letter as you read along mm. with it, which, you know, at some point maybe we can talk about sort of that animals in the book as well which I think is really interesting but no I did not feel compelled to read the gray text in fact I felt very like I felt very much like I know what this is you know like I know what is in this report I I mean besides just knowing uh, you know what happened in Ferguson and sort of like what the findings from reading about it in the news and from other people and you know just it being really it was very present for a while and like sort of knowing what the report was about and the findings in it. I just, I think my position is just sort of like, of course, any report about the police is going to like, I, I can basically figure out what it's going to say. It's going to be bad. You know, of course we know that. So in that, and I think that part of my, just my past knowledge of this and also my just general distrust and dislike of policing, like led me to, you know, that was my own history, personal like history and politics, like coming to the text and like, you know, not feeling that pressure to read the grayed out language at all. Yeah, I felt similarly, you know, the the knowing what the text was, I did not imagine that Nicole wanted me to spend a lot of time with this text or take it into my body or or kind of almost respect it enough to read it. And then I, I, I think probably like, I don't know, 10, 20 pages in, I went and look and read the, the note um, in the back. And so I'm just gonna read that, it's very short. She writes about the work. I began erasing the Ferguson report to further engage with its findings. The report guided my entry into worlds both real and imagined reimagining a reality in which the outcome is often death is perhaps a step toward bringing about an alternative reality, one in which life might prevail. It's almost like the note feels like an erasure of a much longer note, like, right? Like she could have written a whole essay and, and included a whole essay in this book about why she picked it and how she did it and how long it took her. And I'm really interested in, in knowing the answers to those questions, but ultimately she just has, it's just, you know, three sentences, you know, this idea that the book brings about an alternative reality, one in which life might prevail made me again, feel not only am I allowed to just read the 
poems and look at the Ferguson report, but you know, then there's like that interesting difference between looking, seeing, and reading. That's that's really the invitation, which is to is to destroy the communication, the intended communication and the this sort of sanctity or intactness of this incredibly racist, um, horrible, non-literary, full of death report with poems, right? And and so that 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 like supported my sense that like this was this was an an okay way to read the book. Her use of like imagining or reimagining. I mean, I feel like what comes up a lot when someone just throws out the idea that we do not need policing or we don't need, you know, jails or prisons. It's like, people are like, well, then how would we, how would we deal with X? How do we deal with Y? And it's like, to me, sometimes the biggest barrier to abolition and to a world without police is, is imagination. It's just that there's, there is that sort of step that I think people sometimes don't want to take, which is like, what if we just try to imagine a different world, right? So I heard just that, you know, summary or the note at the end, just that word really stuck out to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think like we've described like how active or activating the reading experiences with this book, and it is difficult and it is intense but it's there also for me was a lot of pleasure in reading this mm-hmm. and 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 there were moments where i worried about finding pleasure in the reading and i worried like well as as a white woman am i allowed to enjoy this experience is that is there something wrong um in 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 doing that and I think that with some erasures, um, and like I think we need to talk a little bit about kind of the the history of the erasure or other erasures that this is that this erasure is in conversation with. There is concern. I think there's legitimate concern about finding pleasure or experiencing the reading of this report or anything that comes from this report as pleasurable. And yet I think that that the book is full of pleasure and that part of that pleasure is it's it's not easy pleasure. It's not immediate pleasure. There's there's delay, there's stuttering, there's difficulty, but it is that reimagining. And it is ultimately like this enormous kind of the imagination is 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 this incredible force in this book, which it feels, you know, just as she said, like to reimagine, what's that phrase again? Reimagining a reality in which the outcome is often death is perhaps a step toward bringing about an alternative reality, one in which life might prevail. And I think, you know, there there's, Certainly, I hear a connection to Afrofuturism in that, in that project, in that, you know, in this process. Just thinking about pleasure. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I I don't know if pleasure is the right word for, for me, but I, I found maybe it is the right word. I mean, it was her, 
choice of language here within the erasure is so stunning to me. So maybe that is, there is some pleasure in that. And I think there is, you know, she, she has talked about in interviews, um, all of the, you know, body parts in the book, um, and how it's, you know, for her, it was to make the body less theoretical and more physical. And, you know, maybe some of that is also where some of that pleasure is because, you know, I, it like reminded me of like Ross Gay's A Small Needful Fact, you know, giving like Eric Garner a, a full body with like, you know, his hands figure so prominently in that poem and, you know, a job that he completes with his body and like that context for a human, like giving again, like more, more physical presence rather than a number, a statistic and all of that. And so maybe there is pleasure in actually like, like finding finding that, finding that sort of like humanizing the humans, the, the black bodies, the black people that have been killed and terrorized, you know, giving that body back, I guess. It just makes me think about like if that, how much of that, you know, is the work of, of poetry really, you know, and that's to me, cause that's to me what she, that is what she's, she's doing here with the text, you know? Yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, I was so aware of my body and oh. of the experience of reading this book as an embodied experience, which reading is and isn't for the most part embodied, right? It, it's, it, it's somehow, it feels so um, disembodied sometimes. And, and so, yeah, I felt very re- not just returned to my body and not just very aware of the body and of others' bodies. And there's so many animals in this book. Um, there's so much that's physical. You know, I was listening to, I re-listened to the talk that Robin Cost Lewis gave mm-hmm. about erasure um, today on my way home. And And I was thinking about this question about pleasure and, you know, is it, what are, what are some potential complications of feeling pleasure when reading, even if you're just reading the lifted poems or the poems that are floating from the surface. And part of the pleasure was also like real admiration in her ability to do this to the language and, and poetry's ability to like make this um this world i've been thinking about this a lot as poets in particular we have this very strange job where we're language is used for all kinds of purposes most of which are at best communicative and informational you know, at worst are uh, manipulative and controlling and um, nefarious, right? But like, it's our, it's like our sacred medium is the, is the same medium that people used to just be like, where's the toilet paper, you know, or reading the, the directions on the road. And so one of the things that poetry does, and you know that I'm not like a fan of poetry as rarefied language, like only, 
but there is this way that like this transformation of language, which is kind of like not even real into something so embodied and so physical and, and so transformative is I think like what I most like that feeling and participating in that and, 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 you know, either making it, working with a sentence, you know, or a line or a poem and that feeling of like things clicking together or some kind of transformation of essentially a, a, a nothing medium. It's not like what I imagine painting is like where, you know, just the, the color itself is so divine almost, right? But there is like this moment where the language makes something real, either an image or a feeling or a, or a meaning. And it's, that's part of the pleasure that I felt where I just, and and that's what I feel when I read, you know, what I consider to be great poetry, which is this feeling of like, oh, wow, I didn't even know a person could do that with language or like, I didn't even know the language could do that to me. You know, that I think is on some level, the thing I'm always responding to in poems here it was it was it was visible or embodied in a different way but anyway to go back to robin cost lewis so she gives this great talk and she sort of talks about the history of erasure and she talks about uh, you know some amazing examples of of other erasure and one of the things that i hadn't remembered was how pleasurable like how much she talks about the pleasure of erasure interesting too I mean, you know there's like a lineage now of i think of like black women using this form right you know tracy k smith did yes of the declaration of independence um robin talks about it quite a bit but and then you know nicole obviously i was going to ask you as a teacher like if you teach it because i always felt you know, that it was treated when I was in for, from a lot of my teachers, like as like a, just an exercise, you know what I mean? Like it really wasn't treated as something that could have the weight that, you know, this book does, or there's not ways to do, it wasn't really taught that way to me. It was really just like, here's like a, a fun thing you can do to like spark your (laughs) imagination, you know, but really wasn't, I felt like given any kind of like substantive weight um in either undergrad or in in uh graduate school by by many teachers and professors i had you know i love to see that the form now is like being given um sort of like this this new life and like lineage and new history yeah i mean i when i was coming up it was not considered a serious practice it was considered like you know some kind of cheat or game or you know not like the real thing that I never I never allow a semester to go by without practicing erasure in the classroom at this point I I do this thing now that I'll always do I think which is towards the end and like the last third of the semester I have students bring in 20 copies of one poem, the same poem that they've written. And 
they have to do 20 radical revisions of that poem. And it's a way of moving out of a mindset in which revision is like fixing something that's wrong with the poem. And it's, it's, a, it's a way of like, of getting at like this idea that Nicole is, is talking about and doing of like reimagining the poem, reimagining the text and also collaborating with the text itself. Robin in, in that talk that she gave, gave says that erasing your own work helps you see the essence of your gesture. Erasure doesn't discuss joy and terror. It is joy and terror. So these radical revisions, the first one I always do, and what I have students do is uh, they have to, they do an erasure of their own poem and they hand out copies of their poem. And, you know, let's say five other students will erase their poem and pass them back. So it's this idea that like, okay, here's this poem that you've written that you're so attached to, you know, you you have so much ego investment in it. You feel like you own it. There's this idea that like, you can't play with it. You can't imagine, like completely reimagine it. And when you, when five people, you know, or 20 people all each do an erasure of your poem and you get them back. And all of a sudden you have 20 different poems or five completely different poems that were all in your poem. You, you, you have to like let go of this kind of one-to-one relationship that you have with your own work. And then I have to do all kinds of other radical revisions, erasure being one of them, but erasure is, is somehow opens things up for people in a very deep way. And like they, first they just, it's, it's, it feels very easy. And then you realize it's actually enormously powerful and political. Matt Rohr has always been really interested in erasure. Robin quotes him. He says, erasure has had, has a possibility to offer a moral corrective to the history of Western literature. Then I all had the experience of um, having Chase Bergren as my student when she was at NYU and she was doing a book length erasure of Dracula. And I'd never really, I'd never worked with anyone who, who was working on a book length erasure. Like there were a few books of erasure that I really loved. The Miss of My Kin by Janet Holmes was, was a favorite. I think I gave that to graduate students every year. Um, or at least, you know, referred um, people to it. Um, but I hadn't, I hadn't like sat with someone or seen a, an erasure project unfold until I worked with Chase. Um, and that was, that just kind of like blew my mind and opened up my mind. And I was like, oh, I'm never going back to a world in which at some point in the semester, we don't take things apart or or do something at least an erasure if not multiple erasures if not multiple kinds of erasures um with with different kinds of intentions to to have that kind of relationship with our own work and with each other's work i was thinking about this a lot 
in terms of your experience at NYU, and I don't want to like speak for you, but in some ways, erasure is a is the least narrative of, or it can be, you know, an anti-narrative process. Mm-hmm. And my memory is that you you had a kind of uncomfortable experience at NYU around your work not being as narrative as some people wanted it to be. And I wonder if if there had been more um, access to erasure, if if that would have changed the culture of the program or changed your experience. And I was also wondering in terms of your own aesthetics and poetics, what you think about the relationship between erasure and narrative or narrativity. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, there's a lot to respond to here. Um, and first, you know, I'm just thinking about, you know, I do think that the ego thing is what often gets in the way of um, writers feeling like it could be an acceptable form for them, especially with their own work. So I think there's like two sides of it, which is the the one side is like, you know, erasing your own work feels, you know, like, oh, I've made this thing and I don't want to, I, I can't play with this thing. It should be this like heightened text that I'm trying to craft rather than, rather than play with it and especially bring this physicality to it, which I think that for some reason of all the art forms, right? Every Like so many other art forms, it's like, they're so physical. I'm mostly thinking about, I do um, some ceramics work now. And so, you know, this is this practice for me that's so physical and like so much of um, what I put into it, you know, I often don't know what I'm doing when I um, walk into the studio and have this ball of clay and it just becomes, something comes out of me playing, just purely playing with the clay. And I, you know, try and leave expectations behind um, when I go into it. And I imagine there's a little bit of that kind of perspective that is required for an erasure. And then it can also be just purely physical of having to cross out the words and do that. And I feel like we're not like, like taught all the time that that it's okay to be that physical with text um, when you're writing, you know, besides like just, you know, typing away at a computer besides that, like, what is you know, what else is the body doing or what else could it do? Um, And then on the other side, I think there's like this treatment of like some historical texts as being, you know, too sacred to touch or something, (laughs) Um, which is, you know, so ridiculous. It's like, that just to me is, is so strange. And like the rewriting work is, is what we should be doing, right? So much of this is, we've just been given this like set of texts that we're told, you know, in our, childhood that it should these are sacred you know items that like you know are at the top of the pillar and you just can't do anything with them which doesn't really breed you know I think creativity (laughs) in any way Uh, it stifles it a little bit so it's like those two things I think going on a lot and yeah thinking about my MFA experience and beyond like being somebody who sometimes writes in a very non-narrative fashion and getting resistance to that often a lot of questions like but who is this person who is this you know is there a person in this can there be a person in this (laughs) it's like I don't know why does there need to be always a a person in it um or can you imagine one again it goes back to imagination like how much are you in the poem or not in the poem um or can you be with erasure it's sort of the the same thing of just finding your own sort of narrative path 
in it. So it doesn't need to me, I'm talking about Nicole's book, like it doesn't need, you know, narrative and like some, I don't think erasures necessarily need narrative because for the most part, you're able to like find yourself in them a little better um, and then than other ones because there is that that space, that real capaciousness to the form that I think does give it that, that like more physical, um, like availability for like your like mental and physical self to be there as a reader, if that makes sense. It makes so much sense. And, you know, it, I, I, I just listening to you talk, I was like, there's something so obvious that I feel like I just realized, which is like, yeah, here we go again with the like mind body Western split, right? And the and the diminishing or demeaning of the body and the experiences of the body and body knowledge and body wisdom and the privileging and you know glorifying of the mind, this desire to separate the two, which I think has done us, you know, a world of harm. And, and and persists in our language arts programs where this is one of the things that that you know drives me bananas you know that that we pretend that for writers we don't have bodies or that the language isn't part of the body as much a part of the body as it is a part of the mind or that there is a way to separate the mind from the body, you know, and that we don't find our language and receive our language and connect to language and make our language in the body. What do you want me to ask Nicole when she comes, you know, to reading with Rachel? It's such a special thing to have a writer be present for a conversation about their work she doesn't give a lot of interviews and I don't want to ask her dumb questions but I also don't want to like spend any time showing off by telling her all the smart things I think about her book <laughs> like who cares she doesn't need to hear them from me I mean, I am curious, you know, talking as we were saying earlier, you know, there is, I think, this new kind of lineage of Black women writing about, you know, using erasure as a form, sort of what texts, I'm curious, you know, like what texts she, you know, read, what other books of erasure she read or or poems. I, I asked this question a little bit earlier, but um, thinking about what it means to when she said to make the body less theoretical and more physical. And I can't just help think about that and its relationship to writing poetry today in the 21st century. And like, to I just can't, I keep asking myself, like, is, is that our job as poets? You know, I'm thinking about sort of what I'm working on, I guess, sort of selfishly here. <laughs> and you know, I'm writing a book that is really centrally focused on the history of oil and gas drilling in Los Angeles, as well as the building out of the freeway system. And so for me, I'm trying to find this balance between writing about the true history and the giving the facts as they happened, you know, how many oil sites were built in what neighborhood and why were for instance, Torrance, in which has a very high percentage, more how much higher percentage of them than say, 
you know, the Pacific Palisades, why, what happened <laughs> that made it so that Torrance is largely Native Hawaiians and, and Japanese Americans, while the, while the Pacific Palisades is largely white, right? And like the, the segregation that happened, but so thinking about sort of those facts, but also like who are the real people that live in those neighborhoods and how do I, you know, write in a way that is, gives them physical presence in the book and not like a theoretical sense of like a body of people living in a place. And so I think, you know, that's of interest to me. So I'm not quite sure how you translated that into a question for Nicole, but something I'm thinking about. I'm so glad to hear what you're working on. I am so excited about it. And this question of like, how do you write about history? How do you write about people? How do you write about you know, real people, I guess my question for readers of this book and for writers and other artists is like, even if we don't do an erasure like this, what does an erasure practice or the, the playing with erasure open up for us in terms of finding a way to either make the limitations of the art more visible or push beyond right to like reimagine reality to reimagine the medium to reimagine the limitations of the language of of writing of art making of like you know can we make language material can we create can we make language an embodied an embodiable medium, I guess, is really the question. Yeah, absolutely. How do we go from the theoretical to the physical as writers? Right, yeah. Welcome. Nicole is here. She's just um, connecting. Hi, Nicole. Hey, how are you? So glad to see you. Good to see you as well. Hey, Christine, how are you? Oh, great to see you, Nicole. Oh my gosh. So happy you're here. Hi, everyone. So I just want to say again, uh, before we start, I think I emailed uh, most of you, and I know I emailed you this, Nicole, but I don't know if you had a chance to see my email, but uh, I had COVID in early January and I'm still feeling pretty cognitively impaired. So what that looks like for me is that I'm slower and softer and I'm struggling to bring words back uh, as quickly and, and to remember things. So I'm trying to kind of feel my way into that and notice um, this different change in the quality of my own thoughts and see if I can kind of work with that instead of against it. It's a little frustrating and annoying sometimes. So one of the things that I did this time, which I don't usually do, is I shared the questions that I think I'm gonna ask Nicole with Nicole and uh, made them available in the chat, just as a way of kind of like grounding myself and 
giving myself, uh, sharing the structure um, a little bit and, and maybe in a sense, making it a little bit more collaborative um, so that I don't feel like my sharpness and quickness um, are as necessary or that things don't depend on that. So that's my little preamble to what's going on. And Nicole, I am so, I'm so excited to talk about this book. This book is so different from your other books and yet also feels so much like you in terms of the, the language and the way that uh, animals and images and a kind of like tension in the language that that in this book because of the erasure format um, or form is visible for last lack of a better word like that that feeling of almost making the poem with you or discovering the poem in real time in a very sort of tangible uh, physical way but I feel that to some extent in your other books as well. Reading your book and thinking about your book has also made me think about the way in which all poetry does this thing of like activating my mind of that feeling of like not knowing what the next word is gonna be or you know, of feeling this kind of like suspense and almost like the language itself has a has a material quality that it that it doesn't necessarily have in prose. And the first question I really wanted to ask you, I'm just going to refer to my little question sheet. Which previous erasures helped you the most in writing this book? Um, did the interest in the process doing an erasure come first or desire to write through with against the Ferguson report? and or the anti-Black violence in and around Ferguson, did that come first? What started you on this particular book and project? I would say that my interest in the report itself, I think like many people, we were drawn to it, drawn to the um, ridiculousness of uh, the police brutality as it informs the way policing happens in this country. So when Michael Brown was killed, I was like everybody else. I was disturbed. I was distraught and I wanted to understand why. And so I read and reread the report trying to find answers. And um, lo and behold, there weren't any. Um, there were just, you know, descriptions of biases. And so I, again, read and reread the report just trying to understand. And so I had no intentions of creating a book length anything. I just was drawn to it the way people are drawn to things. And then before I knew it, I began erasing it. I have both the report in a book form, but I, at first I downloaded, downloaded it off the internet. And so mm. I printed it out. And so I was able to really comb through it and highlight and erase and underline and um, write notes in the margins and all those things. And I had had the book Zong by M. Nor B.C. for quite some time, and I hadn't really understood the song of it. Um, and I think after reading the report and and figuring out that I was doing something with the report beyond myself, I was again reading 
Zong. And Zong, if you all don't know, is a, an erasure, a book-length erasure of a court document. This of Zong, the slave ship in the 18th century, whose captain um, drowned the enslaved Africans on board because of to get the insurance money, basically, for the ship's uh, owner. So M. Norbisi erased this document. I was drawn to that while also drawn to the report. And so I think I was informed by Zong, but also one-off erasures as well, like Tracy Kay's declaration and you know some of Dwayne Betts's work. And of course, uh, Chase's read. Yeah, I think I, I was all over the place and I had no real intentions. And I think that's the best way to go into, at least for me, um, writing poetry, having mm -hmm. no real intentions and, and no real way, right? I think had I known it would become a, a book, I, it probably would have felt more daunting than it was. Yeah, I like to to go in unknowing. And excuse me too, I just got home from work, like literally. So I'm kind of um, gathering myself as well. Please, and this is very informal. And I also wanna remind everybody that if you wanna ask a question as well, you can put it in the chat, um, you can raise your hand. Um, I'm gonna make sure at about 7.40 to, to make sure to invite all of you again to ask questions. But you know, this sort of leads into my next question, which is like a lot of people, including me, were really interested in like what the logistics of this process were were like was like for you. So, you know, you you had done an erasure before in in a previous book. You were reading these, you were familiar with the erasures, you were, you know, re re uh engaging with Zong, and then you have the Ferguson report. So you have the printout. Um, did you have multiple printouts? What were you like, tech, like what were you, what were the materials that we were using? Yeah. You doing it at a certain time of day, over what period of time, like all this stuff. I'm so curious. Yeah, I think I began ra uh, racing right after um, Ordinary Beast. So that mm -hmm. was um, September, 2017. And after the book had come out. Um, I had the printout, sure. I had the book too. And I also had my computer, it was on my screen. So I was working on these three different things. Um, what did it look like? When did I do it? I did it when I could. I mean, I was working a full-time job at Cave Canem. And so it was um, nine to five times 10. So it was like nine, it was like 60 hours a week, right? So. I would write when I could on the train during the commute, you know, when I got home from work in the mornings, in lieu of the gym, on my lunch break, whenever mm -hmm. I could, I would. I was obsessed and to some degree still am obsessed with that document, but not in a, it didn't become creative until much later, right? So I was just in it mm -hmm. again, trying to figure out what my obsession was and why. I mean, Ordinary Beast and The Animal After Whom, those are books that deal at least with, at least some poems deal with, with race and um, anti-Blackness. And I think the Ferguson Report just further deepens 
that exploration for me, mm-hmm. right? So it, it's definitely in line with much of the work that has come before. And someone mentioned, or did you mention, Rachel, about the animals populating the work? Yeah. Um, not only in the erasure, but in the works before. But I, I initially studied to be a veterinarian. And so everything that I've ever learned, and this goes for, I think, most poets, everything that we've ever learned, experienced, makes its way into the work. And so um, that that love of and knowledge of animals, I think, made its way. Hmm. When you were working on this erasure, were you working on other non-erasure poems as well? Yeah, because I didn't know this was going to be a thing. Uh-huh. Right. So I have um stalled poems, half-dead poems, um, some lines. Um, and I'm also working on a on an essay collection about my time in the uh in the arts as a as an executive. And so that's a kind of a braided essay format. So I'm learning how to be more expansive with that work. And so mm-hmm. I think at some point that expansiveness might work its way into the poems because in the Ferguson and ordinary beast and all in the animal it's my poems are for the most part brief with some exception clue the cento and a couple others but otherwise they're pretty succinct and so I think I'm relearning how to be more massive hmm I love that Um, That sort of leads me to what I think is kind of my heart question in this, which is, so there's, there's someone um, here, a poet, uh, Wendy, who came to a maker session early this month, and described to me that she's working on a book in which there's like a section or some of the poems are erasures. Um, And then another section of the book, and I don't quite know what to call these, but she's using fragments already and then reconstituting, filling in, expanding. So they're they're like an inside out erasure. And a long time ago, Katie Letterer told me that Lynn Higinian told her that most poets write either out of silence or out of noise. And that it's helpful to kind of identify what your primary temperament is, whether you are a poet who writes out of silence or writes out of noise. Okay. I don't know if this was my COVID brain or my regular misremembering brain, but this is not something Katie Letterer said to me about Lynn Higinian. It's close to something that Eleni Siclianos wrote in an essay about Alice Notley in Women Poets on Mentorship, a book co-edited by me and Arielle Greenberg. Sorry for the interruption. And I was thinking about this for myself, and 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 this is a question that I'm going to pose to the makers in the second hour of the class, which is, do you think that you write, you know, it's one thing to do an erasure, but like, then is there something temperamental about it? Like here you're saying, like, many of your poems have tended to be very succinct. And again, I don't know that that succinctness and erasure are necessarily the same thing or aligned, but do you think that you are primarily a poet who takes something big and finds something in it, your own language, 
similar to the process of erasure? Or are you a poet who has within you a fragment and fills it, if that makes any sense? I, I think so. I think so. But I, I'd like to hear more about noise and silence, those ideas. Can you talk more a, a bit about that? Sure. So I identify as a poet who writes out of noise, not out of silence. So for me, what that means is I used to write in noisy places. Um, and part of my, part of the spark for me was often overheard language um, or putting two things together in the language that ne didn't necessarily go together or trying to pull out of this like tapestry of, of, of language that was both in my head and in the outside world and make poems out of this, this it, as if the air inside and outside was just filled with language. And then how do I, how do I kind of organize that language? How do I make sense of it? Which I guess you could say is, a, is sort of an erasure process in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, language there, yeah. And I think other poets, like their, their sort of primary orientation maybe is of silence and the language comes out of that silence. The language in a way is like uh, a breaking of the silence or um, a, a... I, I think if I, if I had to choose one, I would say more silence than noise, but I, I would rather not choose one and say that I'm come from, I write from a place of, of noise and silence. Um, in thinking about what we were just saying about everything we've experienced make, makes its way into our work, I think that's, that is like overheard language, those experiences, right? And so I think much of the job of being a poet for me is, is gathering material. Mm. And so part of doing that is living. And, and, and part of that living is listening, right? And so, I think I can't help but to be informed by the people that I meet, the things that I hear, everything that I see, right? And we should take note of that, right? Um, I think it was Jane Hirschfield in Nine Gates said um, something like, the author should become, a, a poet should become a person upon whom nothing is lost. Hmm. I think we should always be ready and willing to receive all of it right so i i think i'd rather not choose i'm a, a poet of both noise and silence mm -hmm. i'd like to think i think many of us would like to think that you know all of these lovely phrases and and words that we've kind of gathered together to form these poems have we've ourselves created right but but it's not our genius alone that does that. It's every, it's our parents, the good and the bad of them. It's our coworkers, our friends, our everything. So yeah, noise and, and silence. How I work, I work, may, I, I don't know if, I can work anywhere because of my schedule, my past schedule, right? So I can write anywhere. 
And I love that for myself because some people really need certain conditions to thrive. But I can I can write anywhere because I've had to. I think I skipped a question of yours about erasure and having done it in my first full-length collection. So I don't know if you all know, but in my first book, I had this poem called, I have this poem called Clue. And it's, is it an, an acrostic, is it an acrostic poem on the board game? Is that a, is that a thing? It's a poem, a sustina inspired by the board game Clue. It's like two sustinas, one stacked up on the other. And I then erase it. And when I did that, I was really trying to think through erasure as a form because I wasn't quite sold that it was, that it wasn't just easy, you know, like using other people's language to, to form your own thing. And so I needed to experiment and I did so on myself because I didn't want to experiment using other, someone else's language. And it's hard. It's difficult. It's like writing any other, in any other form, right? And so I came away from that experiment knowing that erasure is as difficult, as painstaking, as poetic as every other form. And so I think that partly gave me permission to, to write the Ferguson Report in erasure. Hmm. So this that's really helpful and and leads me to this other question that that everybody uh, who talks about erasure wants to talk about, which is sort of the ethical part of of erasure, right? Like, you know, once we've decided it is a poetic form, it is legitimate, you know, whatever that means, it has all the same challenges and maybe pleasures of creating what we think of as like original work. But of course, you know, to some extent we're always erasing the language itself um, and reconstituting the language itself. But then this question comes up for people who wanna try erasure, who wanna practice it, which is if they're not erasing their own work, what kinds of texts are okay to write, uh, to erase? And, and not just okay, as in good and bad, permission, you know, not permission, but also like erasing a text like the Ferguson Report or like the court case in Zong is a different, has a different quality to it or, or different considerations than like The Miss of My Kin by Janet Holmes, which is an erasure of Emily Dickinson poems. So there, you know, there can be this feeling of like, destroying or or celebrating so that's one part of the ethical question and then the second will is more about appropriation and you know even plagiarism and I was talking to my son uh, right before this about your book and showing it to him and he was like well you know do you have to get permission to use the original text and we talked about how erasure its similarities and differences to sampling in music as you went into this project of now erasing something that's not your, you know, was not your original text, what what were what were some of your like kind of ethical questions and how did you come to work through those? 
Um, let's see, what were my ethical questions? I think an ethical question in general, not just for this project, but for my poems in general, is like, why? Why, why this idea, why this image, why this document? And I think if the answer to that question is something outside of a kind of humanity that you're trying to explore, right? And not a kind of celebrity that one is trying to, I don't know, gain. Hmm. You know, I, I think, I mean, there's nothing, there was nothing pretty about living in the report for all those years. Like it was at times insufferable and I would not wish being in it on my worst enemy, right? And so what about that process and that particular obsession? What about it kept me going? It, I mean, it's poetry, right? I, we're not trying to be famous being po. You can't, you know, unless you're a handful of them. And so I, I think it boils down to one's intentions, right? What, what do you hope to gain other than a kind of humanist understanding? What are you, what are you trying to gain? Mm -hmm. And if those, again, if that answer falls outside the realm of like discovery, then one might need to rethink, right? Hmm. So, so I, I don't think, I think because I was so obsessed with the document and the poems that I had published before, just, it felt in line with my obsessions. So it didn't feel outside of, it didn't feel outside of me, right? And I know it's poetry, so I know that I'm not gonna gain any kind of celebrity. And the document is in the public domain, uh, so I didn't have to ask permission, mm -hmm. right? So I think in, in that way, I, I didn't have to outright ask myself ethical questions because I had already gone in with answers. It's not a thing one, one gains followers doing, you know, like it's, it's just not. So I, I might be the wrong person to ask about <laughs> ethics as I'm usually unconcerned with it because my work is just inherently concerned with justice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did your friends or partner um, worry about you in doing this? Like you just said, this was, it was not fun to be in this relationship to the mm -hmm. Ferguson Court for a long time. How many years did you work on this? Um, six five or six yeah wow. wow and I know I was very surprised um but then later I was like surprised that I was surprised that 
you had revised the erasure because I sometimes think of erasure as something unrevisable, but you did. So you must have gone through the whole thing many, many times, right? And so was anybody concerned about you? Like, are you, is this bad for you? Is this bad for your spirit? Is this bad for your brain? Like, is, is this like a bad boyfriend you need to break up with? <laughs> I think maybe John, my husband, who's also a poet, he he might have been concerned at times. Um, you know, there's only so much trauma one can can deal with, read in a day. There's one part in the report, um, if you all haven't read it, that this guy is parked at a park after he's played basketball with his friends. And he's just parked resting because he's tired from the game. And um, a cop comes up to his car and just randomly accuses him of being a pedophile mm. and then asks for his license. And before he asks for his license, he asks his name. And the guy in the car tells the cop, says that his name is Mike, Mike Jones, let's say. And so when he gives the cop his license, the license reads Michael Jones. So then he's ticketed for given, giving a false name. Like these are the kinds of things that are happening, right? And it's not just in Ferguson, it's, it's kind of uh, the rule. So like, yeah, you know, I would, I would read these things and be so just upset because I, I know, again, it's not just Ferguson, like it happens every day in any town USA and it's so disheartening, so disheartening. But I'm a person that has to finish the thing she starts and that's not a good or bad thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing, right? Like even books that I might not like, I have to, I just have to finish it if I start it. And so I could not, after realizing what I was doing with the report, erasing it, I couldn't just stop. Like I couldn't just stop. Mm. And then things, more events would happen. As time went on, more things would happen. There's a mention, not outright, but a mention to George Floyd in one of the poems, right? Mm -hmm. And so, the poems just kept changing because more things kept happening, right? And again, I didn't think about this project as a book. And so if, if things keep happening, then of course what's happening is going to inform the erasure, right? Hmm. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Uh, I I guess I'll ask it in a slightly different way, which is having gone through this experience mm -hmm. of six years in wrestling with this text, working with this text, bringing it into your body, are there things that you did or wish you'd done or would recommend to other people who are who are wrestling with either a process or a text that's really difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
and um, ways to continue doing it, um, but also in a healthy way, in a way that's, or, you know, ways to mitigate some of the toxicity I that must have, you know, been present for you. Um, you know, you know, you're living in an incredibly racist country and racist world and the, the outside world, you know, the anti-black violence keeps happening. And then you're also in your writing space, which for some people is a place that they try to, that they go to, to feel not necessarily safe, but it's a sacred mm-hmm. space for some people. So now you have this like racist language and descriptions in your uh in your mind in 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 this text in your own work which you're transforming into other possibilities and then you've got the world so i wonder if there are any practices that you did or or would recommend when in that kind of situation yeah at those times when it felt a bit overwhelming i would just stop I would take a walk. I would call my mom, call a girlfriend. I would make some tea. I would do something else, you know, other than live there. There's a a graveyard a couple blocks from my house. And during the pandemic, John and I would, would walk it. And so I would walk it, right? And that, for me, I know a graveyard doesn't sound like, I don't know, the the best place to to go to um, after having read trauma, but it's peaceful there. Flowers grow and there's big trees. So I would would do something for myself, right? But I also knew, right, that I'm years removed from what had happened, all the things that had happened in the document and it did not I I did not experience any of these things myself, right? And so because I'm a person who, like you all feel things, you know, I felt empathy for all those who had been affected, but I was not there. I did not bear the brunt of any, you know, so I can, I can safely read this document from my, you know, my office Hmm. among books, right? And so while I was in it, I wasn't in it like how one can wake up from a dream, a bad dream, right? Knowing, or even while in a dream, you know that it's a dream, right? So, so, So while it was a lot, to read and reread the report, I mean, that's nothing compared to living it. Yeah. At what point in the process did you realize it was a book or could be a book and start working towards like the bookness of it? Yeah. I think like after the third or fourth movement in the book like when I were when I was um maybe 60 percent finished finished because I went back to the ones that were finished and and revised but maybe when I was about 60 70 percent finished 
Um, and then at, how did you make some of the decisions? Were, like at what point, like, did you always know that the book would look, that, that you wanted the book to look this way? No. No, I, did, I didn't know anything. Um, I didn't know anything. I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know anything because I, I didn't know it was going to be a book. Right. But, but my just personal aesthetic is um, very simple, less is more kind of thing. And I didn't want the cover art to draw attention to itself because I think what's inside is already very visual. And so I wanted the work inside to, to serve as, as the art. So I, I had I had no clue about anything, the cover art, how the words would be displayed on the cover until, you know, we were about to cross that bridge. And I think I'm thankful, again, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that because um again, I, I don't know if I would have completed the project if if I knew, I don't, I, I think it would have been a different project had I gone into it knowing it was a project. Mm -hmm. So are you, you're a Coleman fellow now, right? Mm -hmm. And you're working on, so that's a New York public library. It's this great thing. So you'll be working. I just left to come home to, yeah. Amazing. Um, and that's, you're working on the essays for the most part. Um, I'm working on that, but I'm also working on another collection of poems. Mm. Yeah, I'm working on another collection of poems. And I, so the proposal that I wrote for the Coleman um, Fellowship was, I was inspired by Lil Nas X, the rapper who wrote um, Old Town Road. And it's a, it's a trap country song, but many in the country industry didn't consider it as such because among any many things I think because um Lil Nas X doesn't fit inside one's vision of a country musician so I'm thinking about uh black people's place in country music and country music that's also a play on um country as in country nation and so I'm thinking about my place in this country, especially seeing the recent rise of white nationalism. So it's a whole bunch of things happening. The, the one poem that I'm writing towards right now is a poem about my father that has nothing to do with country, right? But you can't, I, I can't insist that I, for the muse to send me a poem about, you know, this thing, I can just, be ready and willing to accept whatever they send. And so I'm writing this poem about my dad, which has nothing to do with my project, but that's what it is, mm. what it is. This is my last question before I uh, ask if anybody else has questions, but I'm wondering, so, so now you're working on these essays, you're working on poems and you're also open to whatever comes. Do you feel like post this, the working with the Ferguson report has the process of erasure changed your brain, your poetics, your aesthetics, or is it, as you said earlier, kind of like 
it's all poetry. It's all writing. It's all it's all working with language. I think it's all working with language. And I think you said it before that it's all found language, right? Even free verse, it's found language. And so while I might not have ac accessed uh, these words that I accessed in the report, had I not been uh, inspired by the report, I still had access to those words, right? Mm -hmm. um, maybe not in that order. I think what I might take away from from having been erasing for so long is um, I want to say a kind of a kind of of silence that that lives generally in erasure that I think can really be of service to to my my other formal or free verse poems, right? Maybe um, use of white space. Hmm. maybe some play on some more play on the page yeah there's something very playful about erasure that I connected with um, despite the heavy subject matter there's something in the music of erasure that makes it feel so eerie and it's hard to kind of pin down exactly why and what that is, but I hope to incorporate it mm. in future work. I love that you use the phrase music of erasure because I think we often think of erasure as a visual um, medium, but I feel that so strongly that, that, there, that there is this music of erasure and the word eerie is so um, accurate to the feeling that I have um, reading your book and and to the feeling that I had that I have when I work with erasure mm -hmm. um, that there's there's something oh, eerie yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah it's it's like well one um, reviewer likened it to like a Ouija board. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, it's kind of like that. Yeah. Very like spirited, spirit heavy. Something is happening. Like there's a reason why my eye goes to one word and your eye might go to an, like there's, there are reasons for that. Like we're all kind of writing to our own internal music. And I think that that music is, is amplified in erasure. Hmm. Hmm. I love that. Does anyone have questions for Nicole? I try to uh, kind of include some of the questions that people sent me in the Google forms, which thank you so much. They were fascinating um, to look at. And also uh, there were a few questions for me, which I'm gonna answer in the maker session, but yeah, Wendy, please. Hi, and thank you so much for being with us. This is wonderful. I wanted to ask, what guided you from word to word as you started to erase? And, you know, we often say that don't begin with intention when you're writing. But um, so I wondered what that balance was for you. And did you intend to kind of highlight the the unspoken or the underlying racism in the report or, or simply to find 
just to see what would happen intuitively as you yeah. seized on a word that sounded good with another word and, and the mm -hmm. discovery seeing where it would lead. I, just sort of what that process was as you erase. I've always found it just intuitive. I never really know what I'm doing, but um, yeah, wondered how it was for you. I think my work lives in kind of the lyric narrative space. And um, because of this, I was really looking for lyric in the report. And I mean, the report is the report. It's a very sterile formal document. And so I had to create lyric where there isn't any, right? What I didn't want to do was restate, retell the Ferguson report. Um, readers might as well read the Ferguson report. And so I wanted this to supplement be a, a critical slash creative alternative. Yeah, I, I, I didn't want to just restate. I wanted it to be something wholly new and a world within which um, horses open the space, right? So I wanted it to be or represent rather a place both real and imagined, right? I wanted, I for myself, I wanted to be surprised and, you know, Frost, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. I wanted myself to be surprised. And so I tried to, to turn as much as possible, to leap as much as possible in the work. So as to disorient myself. And so I, I wouldn't get too comfortable, right? Because I think comfort makes for flat palms. Hmm. Did I answer hmm. your question, Wendy? Yes, thank you so much, very much so. Great question and such a wonderful response, Nicole. Um, makes me think about, I asked last session, I think, a question that I often ask uh, pretty much every semester in, in my classes. What do you want your poems to do? So this, this exchange made me think of the question, when you are writing poems, what are you doing? to the language or with the language and thinking about are you finding the lyric in the in the non-lyric language are you erasing um the language are you are you making the language are you and this this question about surprise and comfort are you destabilizing the language are you dis are you rearranging the language in order to create a spark that's going to you know create something new or to surprise yourself um super interesting any anyone else have a question hi judy hi um i'm so sorry i came in late um and i'm so thrilled to hear you talk about this book and i just felt 
just entranced reading it between like the poems you composed and then this shadow of the Ferguson report, which I'd love to hear how, like, I feel like the concept of erasure and the idea that you were working on this erasure and revising it might be like the the craft and process of that might have gotten really complicated and overwhelming. Like, I'd love to hear like really nuts and bolts of like, what were your materials? Did you lay, you printed it up, you laid it out, you erased, you worked over it. How, how, how crazy did they get? <laughs> I'm gonna find my notes. Is it not in here? Well, I have many versions of sections of the the work in a in a file in an electronic electronic file. But I also have printouts, um, multiple printouts of the actual document that I downloaded. And so I was working off many many documents. It's kind of like I don't know if you read my first book. Um, but so the, I think that the process was kind of like working on the Cento. And since I have these files at the ready, I can just show you what it's like to kind of piece together found material. Okay. So this folder is comprised of lines that I mined from my home library for possible inclusion in the Cento in my first book. And so it, everyone knows what a Cento is? A, a Cento is a, is a poem made up um, of lines by other poets. And so um, traditionally a Cento, hence Cent is about a, is a hundred lines long, right? But some Cento's um, folks have, you know, did 10 line centos, 12 line centos and so on. For this experiment, I wanted to, to write a hundred line cento. And so here are possible lines. And this doesn't show you a way into the erasure, but it, it, it might show you a bit about how my mind works. I need to see the thing. I need mm. to see it. I need to touch it. More lines. So I probably wrote out by hand for the Cento a couple thousand lines that I loved from my home library. And so I would then put these pages on my dining room table, lay them out, and then I would circle my table and find one line after the other, and then try to connect the dots from there. I think similar to this process, I would really deeply look at the report and words would just jump out at me because you know where we have experience with certain words, we're connected to certain words. And so certain words would jump out to me and I would circle them, highlight them, think about ways to, I might use them uh, or think about service words because not all words are going to be those kinds of um, kind of electric words, right? Some some phrases have to help those electric words. We have to try to get from point A to point B. And so while I, I wanted the book to be filled with electricity, 
um, I also knew that it had to, it had to move, right? It had to move. So I would, I have all these printouts, all these circled words, all these um, helping phrases. And I don't know, it's just, the process is different from poem to poem. But I, again, I think I need to feel the document, see the document, put pen on the paper, circle, notes. I need to do all the things. I just need to, it needs to be part of me for however long that it takes to to write the thing. I don't know if that answers your question. Super cool, super cool. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay, for some reason I feel compelled to ask, did you use Sharpies, pens, whiteout, and high, you said you used highlighters. Like, I don't know why I want so desperately to know this, but I do. So, so I didn't want to kill too many trees with this project. So on one reading, I would go through and highlight words that I was attracted to, right? And then think about those words in context of other words. And then on a second read, I would then underline words on in the same document, right? So as not to to mix up like the words that I was attracted to and when, because at certain points we're attracted to things and not others. So I would mark the date of the highlight, mark the date of the underline, mark the date of the circle, right? Um, and think about what's happening in the world then, right? Yeah, so no whiteout. I didn't use whiteout. So pen, Sharpie, highlighter, and the strike through feature on the computer. Yeah. Well, it's eight o'clock. Um, I just want to, first of all, thank you so incredibly much for joining us. For thank your you for having me. Book, for your other books. I'm so excited about the next thing um, that you're, you know, all the things that you're working on now. Uh, I'm so delighted that you have some time and space um, <laughs> to work. <laughs> and then just to say, you know, is there anything that you want to add that, or, you know, even if you don't want to answer it right now, I'm always curious to know from authors, like, what is the question that you most want to be asked about this book that maybe haven't been asked yet? Oh, that's a good question. And I don't know if I have a good, a good answer for it. I do want to want to say we we mentioned earlier that um, the why of a thing, right? Um, why erasure? Why why? And why not? Why not erasure? Right. Everything that we're doing has been done. Every topic that we're treating has been treated. Right. There's nothing nothing at all new and the only reason that it has some semblance of newness is because we've added our little spice to it our individual spice right and so I think I don't have so much as a question as I have encouragement to although something can feel like oh it's been done it hasn't been done by you and by you, I mean you, but by you, I also mean me, right? And so I would just encourage you as much as myself to don't think about the next new thing because nothing is new. 
I love that. Thank you. Thank you. It was great talking with you all. Yeah. All right. So thank you, Nicole. All the rest of us, some of us are leaving and the rest of us are going to take a five minute bio break. And then we're going to come back and have the second um, part of the class. Okay. Be good. Take care. You too. Thank you, Nicole. This has been episode 122 of Commonplace with Nicole Seely and Christine LaRusso. This episode was produced by me, Christine LaRusso, Lee Sugar, and Lola Anaya. Many thanks to Knopf, Wesleyan University Press, Ugly Duckling Press, and Shearsman Books, and to all the presses who send our patrons amazing, amazing books. Thank you to our patrons. You make Commonplace possible. Thank you to the listeners, learners, and makers who signed up for classes at the Commonplace School. Thank you to Nicole Seely for her book and her enormous generosity. And to you, listener, thank you for listening. You're listening to two separate things composed and performed by Moses Zucker-Gorin.